Okay, so let's get started. Um, this week in youth, Graham told the kids this kind of harrowing tale of a young man in early middle school who had developed a little ahead of everyone else, and, uh, and that had elevated him to the highly sought-after position of playground kickball deity. He was the kickball master, um, always the captain of one of the teams, feared by every ball-rolling pitcher, an absolute hero of his teammates. Um, and as this young man left for summer, after another year of kickball dominance, he was unaware that his friends had undergone, undergone their growth spurt. And they all came back, and many had surpassed him in size and speed and coordination. And, uh, and so Graham told of the emotional struggles that this young baller went through as he felt himself slip from the most scouted and sought-after sought player on the kickball diamond to, during um, Overland Park Elementary School recess um, to the kid that went uh, in the fourth, fifth, and sixth round of the draft. Um, as Graham told this deeply emotional and highly autobiographical story um, to the teens, <laughs> my mind went to my kind of fall from glory. My senior year in high school, I felt like I was playing against junior high students. Like I averaged 15 tackles a game and three sacks. Um, on offense, I was the power side tackle. Uh, we averaged six yards a carry on offense, and 90% of the time, um, we ran right where I was, like, and I was cocky about it. I would, like, get out of the huddle. Hey, it's coming right here, guys. We're bringing it right here, so come on, bring it up. And, and, I would, and we still averaged, like, nobody could stop us. Um, and so uh, we, uh, we went unbeaten that year uh, until, uh, until the, like, third round of the state playoffs. And we played this team who watched our films and realized we never changed what we did because it always worked. And so they came up with a very specific attack designed for, and we were so used to doing the exact same thing every week that we had no idea how to change to something else to fix the problem. So we got just kind of outcoached and, and lost our, our only game. So, uh, so I graduated um, feeling like, you know, the king of the world. And I had scouts coming to every game, and they told me I was awesome, and I believed them. Um, and I was going on recruiting trips, and they treat you like royalty. And so I kind of finished my senior year with a scholarship, and I was excited to go play ball. And I chose a smaller kind of D2 school because I was closer to home, and I actually wanted to play. I didn't want to get redshirted my freshman year. And August came around, and I walked into training camp expecting to dominate the field like never before, and that lasted about 10 seconds. I realized that I was a peon at that level. And... uh I'd beefed up, you know, that summer. I'd gotten a little bit bigger. And so our offensive line, um, the far tackle was 315 pounds. The far side guard was only 275, but he was also only 5'7", so he was kind of a bowling ball. Um, <laughs> the center right next to me was 330 pounds. The tackle on the other side of me was 325, and I was weighing it at a big old 240. Like, I looked like I was tiny compared to these guys. I look like a middle schooler. And what made it worse was um, when, we, when we faced the defense, I got crushed. Like, and it hurt. Like, I forgot how much getting hit could hurt. They hit so hard. And uh, I'd forgotten what it felt like to play people bigger than me. And, uh, and so I left every practice feeling like I'd been in a car wreck. I was like, I don't like football anymore. Um, 
And the worst part was I could remember being the king. Like I could still remember what it felt like to be the guy who dominated. But uh, but now I'm on the field getting the stuffing kicked out of me every single practice. And I think it's, uh, it's harder to taste power and lose it than it is to never taste power. And, uh, and that brings on this week's Saint. We're in our third week of this year's Saint series that we titled Surrounded. Um, we pulled the name from Hebrews 12, where we basically um, doing what Open Table does every November. We honor believers who have gone before us. The writer of the Hebrews said, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sins that so easily trip us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. I just love that idea of all the believers of old surrounding us with their stories and the lives they lived and the examples they had for us to see and what it looks like for an ordinary ragamuffin like us to follow Jesus in the real world. So first we studied Juan de Zumarraga, the first bishop of Mexico. If you missed that week, I highly recommend going back and listen to it because Zumarraga had a lot to say about being here in Wellsville in 2020, what it's like to be on the backside of everything and and passionate about serving Jesus. Last week we studied Monica of Hippo, this woman who reminds us the impact a single person can have on on history through just good old-fashioned faithfulness. Um, though her lot in life was far from ideal, she loved God, she loved people, uh, and with little else to do, she did what every Christian mother has done for millennia. She prayed for her family. And by the time she died, Monica had seen the conversion of her husband, her tyrant mother-in-law, and her three children, one of whom was not only resistant, um, but actually combative toward Monica's faith. And through many, many, many prayers and years of long faithfulness, Monica finally got to see her son, the final person in her family, come to faith in Jesus. And what Monica didn't get to see is how that final son, um, who we know of as Augustine or St. Augustine, if you were raised in the Catholic Church like I was, um, go on to become arguably... Um, the most influential theologian in church history. And uh, in my opinion, one of the most eloquent authors on the grace of God that has ever lived. So Monica literally changed the world um, by being a mom, faithfully, year after year after year after year. Well, this week's saint is from the Bible. Every year as we look at saints of old, I try to uh, find a faithful follower of God who lived long enough ago that his story is recorded in Scripture. Um, I generally try to find someone that we don't talk about very often. Um, And this year we're going to look at Jonathan. Um, Jonathan's kind of an interesting person because he's a guy that um, almost always gets seen in light of his relationship to David. Rarely do we talk about Jonathan outside of his relationship to David. He was David, King David, the David, uh, his best friend. Um, In fact, as we look at, uh, I was looking for some famous art depicting Jonathan and um, I couldn't find any of just, nobody even tried to paint what Jonathan might look like by himself. Every picture of Jonathan that famous artists tried to dive into were a picture of Jonathan and David together. This one was done by Rembrandt. Um, and I, I really like it because it kind of accentuates the difference in Jonathan and David's socioeconomic um, position maybe. Um, because this is a relationship between a prince and a shepherd. Um, this is the son of a king and a young shepherd boy. Like, you couldn't get much. It really kind of highlights the stark difference between these two. Um, But David and Jonathan do, despite their differences, have an utterly unique relationship in Scripture, and their love and 
commitment and brotherhood is so intense that rarely do you hear about Jonathan outside of his deep friendship for David. Well, this morning, um, though I'm, I'm not going to be able to avoid David's kind of part in this, his context in Jonathan's life, I do want to see if we can kind of figure out who Jonathan was as a person um, before we kind of look at his friendship to the most famous king in Israel's history. So our opening passage um, is the first time Jonathan walks into the scripture, first time we find out about him at all. It's in 1 Samuel 13, if you want to track with me. If not, the words will be uh, on the screen. It says, Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 42 years. Um, Saul selected 3,000 special troops from the army of Israel and sent the rest of the men home. He took 2,000 of the chosen men with him to Michmash and the hill country of Bethel. The other 1,000 went with Saul's son, Jonathan, to, uh, to Gibeah in the land of Benjamin. Soon after this, Jonathan attacked and defeated the garrison of the Philistines in Geba. The news spread quickly among the Philistines. So Saul blew the ram's horn and threw out the land, saying, Hebrews, hear this, rise up and revolt. All of Israel heard the news that Saul destroyed the Philistine garrison at Geba and that the Philistines now hated the Israelites more than ever. So the entire Israelite army summoned to join Saul in Gilgal. This is the word of the Lord. This is a short uh, kind of pericope of Scripture that actually um, a passage that's kind of used to, really the only reason it's there is to kind of set up or it's used as setting for a, a much bigger, more impactful story. This little skirmish kind of sets up this greater battle that's really important in the story of Saul um, because Saul kind of gets tired of waiting for the prophet to come and kind of bless the battle and so and make sacrifices before the battle. It's something they did before every battle. And Saul gets kind of bored of waiting for the priest, so he offers the sacrifice, which is completely kind of forbidden. And so this is kind of a, a key moment in the beginning of Saul's downfall. And so that's really the big story. And this little skirmish at the beginning kind of sets that up. But um, so generally we only spend time in 1 Samuel 13 to talk about Saul's decision to offer a sacrifice he wasn't supposed to offer. But, um, but this is the first time we hear about Jonathan at all. It's the first time he shows up. So I thought we might just kind of look at this passage more from Jonathan's part in it. Uh, and immediately we find out that Jonathan's kind of a badass. Um, am I allowed to say that in church? I didn't check the rules. But... Um, <clears throat> But we read this passage um, uh, and find some... I'm going to move on before my wife or Judy washes my mouth out, <laughs> washes my mouth out with soap. Um, but we, we find out that, that Saul's kind of amazing. It says, uh, Saul selected 3,000... Or Jonathan, I mean. Saul selected 3,000 special troops from the army of Israel and sent the rest home, uh, men home. He took 2,000 of them to Michmash, the hill country of Bethel. The other 1,000 went with Saul's son, Jonathan, to Gibeah in the land of Benjamin. Soon after this, Jonathan attacked and defeated the garrison of the Philistines at Geba. So Jonathan takes the smaller portion of the army, and he wastes no time in racking up his first victory. Um, it's kind of funny because Jonathan uh, uh, is actually what makes the Philistines angry and kind of rally their entire army, um, which is considerably larger than the Israelite army. Later in the chapter, they kind of tell you the numbers. Like they have way more people. Um, and so Jonathan kind of is the first one to pick the fight. He's the one that just kind of goes in and, and starts the thing. Um, but uh, he doesn't wait. He doesn't even hesitate. He grabs men. He attacks, wins the first victory. Um, Jonathan gets first blood. Um, and now this is the, kind of our first look at Jonathan, just this guy who doesn't hesitate. He kind of dives right into the battle. Um, and we don't have much to go on, but the next time we run into this warrior, um, 
It gets even better. This happens in chapter 14. It says, One day Jonathan said to his armor bearer, "Um, Come, let's go over to where the Philistines have their outpost. But Jonathan didn't tell his father what he was doing. Meanwhile, Saul and 600 men were camped in the outskirts of Geba around the pomegranate tree of Migron. These were country people. Like, you know how country people are like, you turn left at the, at the oak, you know. Like, when they, when they give directions based on the pomegranate tree at Geba, you know that these are rednecks. Um, among Saul's men were uh, <laughs> Ahijah the priest, who was wearing the ephod, the, the, the priestly vest. Ahijah, the son of Ichabod's uh, brother, I'm not even going to try. Um, son, let's move on a little bit. No one realized Jonathan had left the Israelite camp. Um, to reach the Philistine outpost, Jonathan had to go down between the two rocky cliffs that were called Bozas, Bozes and uh, Sina. The cliffs on the north was the face of Michmash, and one on the south was the front of Geba. Let's go across uh, to the outpost of those pagans, Jonathan said to his armor bearer. Perhaps the Lord will help us, for nothing can hinder the Lord. He can win the battle whether um, he has many warriors or only a few. Do what you think is best, the armor bearer replied. I'm with you completely, whatever you decide. All right, then Jonathan told him, we'll cross over and let's see uh, and let them see us. If they say to us, stay where you are, or we'll kill you. Then we'll stop and not go up to them. But if they say, come up here and fight, then we'll go up. That will be the Lord's sign that he will help defeat them. He will help us defeat them. Then the Philistines saw them coming and shouted, look, the Hebrews are crawling out of their holes. And the men from the outpost shouted to Jonathan, Come up here and we'll teach you a lesson. Come on, climb right up beside, or, or come on, climb up behind me, Jonathan said to his armor bearer, for the Lord will help us defeat them. So they climbed up using both hands and feet. That's an indication of just how steep it was. And the Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer, killed those who came up behind. They killed about 20 men in all, and their bodies were scattered over about a half an acre. I kid you not, I looked it up in Hebrew, and the title of this battle in Hebrew is called Hold My Beer, because that's kind of what um, what this sounds like. Like, Jonathan's sitting around bored, and he's like, hey, what if we went over there and picked a fight? Like, have you ever known people like that? They're like, oh, oh you think so? Um, so, obviously, I'm kidding about that name. Don't look it up in Hebrew. You won't find it. But... Um, but this sounds like some crazy stuff. Like Jonathan um, uh, decides to just go over and, and pick a fight against an army. Um, let's kind of leave our entire posse behind. Let's go into enemy, enemy territory and, and see what there is to see. So, um, so women, if you've ever seen your man like do some truly stupid stuff, just that life-threatening, you know, just know that it's biblical. It's biblical. That The way we do that is the way... No, men have been doing that stuff all the way back to Jonathan. Um, and I know, like, when I was reading it, I was seriously like, I cannot imagine what his wife said when he got home. Like, he got his butt chewed. Um, seriously, though, this is not a sport. This is like swords and spears and real death and blood and gore. This is brutal. Most of the ham- combat back then was hand-to-hand and exhausting. And Jonathan just dives into this thing, risking his life for real. Um, to go into the enemy camp and make a statement. And I don't know if, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know if he understood it that way, but it, it seems like um, he put everything at risk for this moment. But at the end of the day, Jonathan, once again, just like in the last chapter, is the victor. Um, he just simply has a knack for this warfare stuff. 
And the next time we, uh, we see Jonathan after this story, uh, we get to finally get a little better picture of him other than just being really good at killing people. Um, so I'm going to paraphrase a little bit because it is a little bit long and I don't want to have to read too much. But um, this little raiding party that Jonathan and his armor bearer go on sets up a ton of confusion in the, in the Philistine camp. Um, I think, uh, you know, a field full of dead bodies and no charging army, you know, sent the Philistines wondering what in the world is happening. And so they decide to attack and kind of just start killing each other. Like they just kind of lose their minds um, and, uh, and just go crazy. And, uh, and before, uh, uh, and so Saul, who's on the other side of this kind of valley, this kind of uh, chasm between these two mountaintops, hears the commotion. He hears the chaos. He basically hears a battle happening. And he, all he can assume is some of the Israelites are fighting some of the Philistines. So he rallies his people to go over there and defend the Israelites and come to find out there are no Israelites. It's just Philistine killing Philistine. But, but Saul decides, you know, he's going to engage and dive into this battle and support his people. And so he calls for this, uh, this priest um, because he wears the, the ephod, which is this kind of um, special spiritual vest and, and is kind of how they sought God and, and uh, so they're going to kind of ask God, do we go or do we not go? Do we fight or do we not fight? And um, and he uh, uh, he kind of gets tired of waiting and just goes, forget it, we don't have time, and and uh, and takes up. I'm going to actually read that. It says, then Saul shouted at Ahijah, bring the ephod here. For at the time, Ahijah was wearing the ephod in front of the Israelites. And while Saul was talking to the priest, the confusion in the Philistine camp grew even louder. So Saul said to the priest, never mind, let's go, let's get going. I guess doesn't even want to take time to seek God and find out if this is what they're supposed to do. Never mind, let's get going. And Saul and all of his men rushed out of the battle and found the Philistines killing each other. So Saul wants to go right now, really bad. And he wants to do it right, but impatience gets the best of him, um, which I think actually kind of bears heavily on this next story of Jonathan's. But Saul offers some sacrifices in the first story that he wasn't supposed to offer. That kind of goes bad. And if you want to read the rest of that chapter, Samuel kind of goes off on him, the prophet at the time. And so here's in the next story, he wants to do the right thing. He wants to seek God. Again, kind of gets it wrong. And so in this next story, I think all of these kind of spiritual failures build up and lead to this story. Saul and his army attack this disorganized Philistine camp of people killing each other and all the chaos. The Philistines finally fled. They're fleeing from the Israelites. And in his kind of zeal, Saul yells out, May a curse fall on anyone who eats before I find vengeance on my enemy. And so he kind of declares a fast. Nobody eats until we've killed every Philistine out there. And so, um, you ever like said something stupid and the second it comes out of your mouth, you're like, maybe I shouldn't have said that. Um, daily for me. But um, when Saul says this kind of stupid thing in his battle fever, um, he puts his vow out before God. And I think because his last two attempts to kind of do the right thing for God went so poorly, he decides to stick by this one. Um, the only problem is um, Jonathan, Saul's son, uh, didn't hear this. It's, so this is what happened. But Jonathan had not heard his father's command. And he dipped the end of his stick into a piece of honeycomb and ate the honey. After he had eaten it, he felt refreshed. But one of the men saw him and said, Your father made the army a strict oath that anyone who eats food today will be cursed. And this is why everyone is so weary and faint. Well, my father is... Made trouble for us all, Jonathan exclaimed. A command like that only hurts us. See how refreshed I now I am now that I've eaten a little bit of honey? 
if the men were allowed to eat freely from the food they found amongst our enemies, think how many more Philistines we'd be able to kill. Is anyone else hearing music or am I having a stroke? Okay, good. Making sure. So so now Saul is uh, kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. He's made this vow to God, and now his son is the one who breaks the vow. And after Saul kind of finds out what happens, he decides he is not going to fail God this time. Uh, Jonathan has to die. That's the rule. So uh, here's how that actually reads in 1 Samuel 14, if you're kind of trying to track with us. Tell me what you've done, Saul demands of Jonathan. Well, I tasted a little honey, Jonathan admitted. It was only a little bit on the end of my stick. Does that deserve death? Yes, Jonathan, Saul said. You must die. May God strike me or even kill me if you do not die for this. Man, you've got to stop making vows. You just have to stop saying things like that. But the people broke in and said to Saul, Jonathan has won this great victory for Israel. Should he die? Far from it. As surely as the Lord lives, not one hair on his head will be touched. For God helped him to do a great deed today. So the people rescued Jonathan, and he was not put to death. Then Saul called the army back from chasing the Philistines, and the Philistines returned home. Now, we've established that Jonathan can kick butt. There's no doubt about that. He's a great warrior. But the way the entire army kind of rallies around him here, um, even in defiance of the king, um, tells us that just... Jonathan was more than just a great fighter. He was the kind of person people liked. Um, he was the kind of person that people stuck up for. That um, Jonathan could probably have stolen the kingdom here if he wanted. It feels like, you know, the army is behind him. And this is a time when whoever had the army, you know, ruled. Um, so this is kind of Jonathan. This is who he is before he meets David. He's this amazing warrior who also had the heart of people. Like, people loved him. People cared for him. And, uh, and in chapter 15, Saul kind of makes a huge mistake, uh, kind of blows it again. He's kind of got a track record of doing that now. Um, and Samuel says, God's going to tear the kingdom away from you and, and tears his clothes, which was a big thing back then, and says, God's going to take the kingdom from you. And God sends Samuel to find this kid named David. And David, from this point on, kind of becomes the central figure of the narrative. We don't read a lot about Jonathan because David is kind of who we're following now in the story. And we all know David's story well. He's the shepherd boy who the prophet anoints to be king. He's the giant slayer. He's the rock star who can chase off demons with his guitar. He's the mighty warrior who ladies sing songs about. And though most of the story, um, as far as Jonathan is concerned, most of David's story is the story of his best friend. Jonathan fell in love with David. They hit it off from the beginning. Um, and they not only kind of agree to be each other's like ride or die BFF, but they promise that their kids and their kids' kids are going to care for one another. They're going to they're look after each other's families. And when Saul grows kind of jealous of David, um, he actually asked Jonathan at one point to kill David. He's so angry at David, he asked his son to kill him. Um, and this is kind of an indication of how absurd, you know, absurdly close David and Jonathan's relationship was. Jonathan is the prince. He's the rightful successor to the throne. And David is this impoverished kind of shepherd turned popular soldier. I mean, there's a, like historians have looked back. There's a point when, when David goes to, to work in Saul's kind of office and 
and Jesse, David's dad, sends a gift. Like, his stories have looked back on that, and it's like a laughable gift. It's so small. Like, and it's kind of this clear indication that David was poor. Like, he, you know, they didn't have much. And, and uh, so you've got this kind of impoverished shepherd boy and this, the prince, like the, the heir to the throne. Um, and all Jonathan has to do with the king's blessing is kill this guy and, and his throne is secure. And obviously Jonathan refuses and kind of goes on a rant at his dad about how good David's been. Like, why would you do this? He's done nothing but bless you. He's done nothing but take care of you. And Saul kind of repents temporarily and lets Jonathan off the hook. But eventually David kind of convinces Jonathan, your dad is going to kill me. And, uh, and so he set up this kind of plan to discover if the king really does want to kill David. Um, so with nothing else to do, David and Jonathan, uh, they find out that Saul really does want to kill David. And so David and Jonathan have to say goodbye. They have to part ways for David's safety. Um, and so they kind of embrace one last time for Jonathan to go back to the palace and David to become a refugee. And the exchange, the exchange reads like this. As soon as the boy was gone, this is uh, Jonathan's armor bearer, David came out from where he had been hiding near the stone pile. And David bowed three times on the ground, uh, or to Jonathan with his face on the ground. Both of them were in tears as they embraced each other and said goodbye, especially David. At last, Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for we have sworn loyalty to each other in the Lord's name. The Lord is the witness of a bond between us and our children forever. Then David left, and Jonathan returned to the town. So the young men are now separated. Their deep friendship is basically destroyed by Jonathan's dad's jealousy. And, uh, and this exchange is, is really powerful because David kneels down in front of Jonathan. Jonathan is the prince. Jonathan's the future king. Jonathan was the most popular soldier in the army until this guy came along. And Jonathan is more than anyone on the planet to lose if this guy lives. And now he's on his knees, head down in front of him, fully vulnerable. All Jonathan has to do is strike and the kingdom is his. But obviously he doesn't. Not long after, after David and Saul have this kind of big exchange, Jonathan sneaks out and finds his old friend. This is years later. And, uh, and here's what he says years later. Don't be afraid, Jonathan reassured him. My father will never find you. You're going to be the king of Israel. And I will be next to you, as my father Saul is well aware. So the two of them renewed their solemn pact before the Lord. Then Jonathan returned home while David stayed in Horesh. Something in Saul's behavior, probably David's behavior during the long period of exile, while Saul is kind of maniacally pursuing David, something in all that convinces Jonathan that David um, was going to take over. David was going to be the king. Um, and maybe not even that, but David should take over. Uh, so the one person that stands to lose the most to David chooses to step aside peacefully and let David have the throne. And this is probably what Jonathan's most famous for, is this moment that he, uh, uh, that, that the prince of Israel knows that David, not Jonathan, but David will be the next king. It's kind of astonishing. Um, but Jonathan goes down as kind of the quintessential friend, like the friend. When we talk about close friendships, we always go to Jonathan. But I saw something a little different in Jonathan's story this time because uh, 
People tend to give Jonathan's love for David as the motivating factor in why he stepped aside and let David rule, this deep love he had for David. And, but I think there's another reason. Remember that very first story when we read this uh, about Jonathan kind of first grabbing his first group of men and storming off and conquering a Philistine garrison? Look at this little kind of hidden detail. Uh, Saul was 30 years old when he became king and reigned over uh, reigned for 42 years. Saul selected 3,000 special troops from the army of Israel and sent the rest of the men home. He took 2,000 of the chosen men with him to Michmash and the hill of Bethel. The other 1,000 went with Saul's son Jonathan to Geba in the land of Benjamin. Soon after this, Jonathan attacked and defeated the garrison of the Philistines at Geba. The news spread quickly amongst the Philistines, so Saul blew the ram's horn throughout the land crying, Hebrews, hear this, rise up and revolt. All of Israel heard the news that Saul had destroyed the Philistine garrison at Geba and that the Philistines now hated the Israelites more than ever. Now, wait a minute. Look at this. In verse 3, it says, soon after this, Jonathan attacked and defeated the garrison garrison of Philistines at Geba. But one verse later, it says, all of Israel heard the news that Saul had destroyed the Philistine garrison a garrison at Geba. So here's what I think about Jonathan. I think Jonathan was this amazing friend who loved David so completely and unwaveringly that he was more concerned about David's success than his own, which is true, like, biblical love. And it's beautiful. Every time, um, uh, every, every time I read this, I, I see, like, this real love. In fact, Ben and Allie Mays got married last night, which was beautiful. And every time I'm around, like, young love, I'm, like, struck by how deeply and passionately selfish it is. <laughs> like, and, uh, and, you know, and that's not a bad thing. It's how we all fall in love. Um, but it's not really love. I mean, if, if you think about it, what you're basically saying is um, when, when, when we fall in love is, is I like to feel good, and you make me feel really good. And so... I want to be with you more because I really, really like how I feel when I'm with you. Like, that's not really, um, it's mostly about you. Like, boy, you make me feel good, and I like to feel good, so we should stay together. Um, But real love goes, who cares about my happiness? I want what's best for you. I want what makes you happy. I want you to succeed. I want what makes you healthy and safe and, and, um, and strong. And I think David loved, or Jonathan loved David that way, where he was like, you know, it's not about me. It's, you know, I want what's best for you. I also think Jonathan was a deeply committed believer. Um, as close as David and Jonathan were, I imagine David told Jonathan about the time the prophet came and anointed him and, and how confusing all that was. I'm sure Jonathan saw the way David worshipped and heard his songs. And, and I'm sure Jonathan considered the way God's people responded to David. And I'm, I'm sure his love for God's people, uh, you know, made him want what was best for them. So when Jonathan says, when it says that Jonathan went to find David and encourage him to stay strong in his faith in God, don't be afraid, Jonathan reassures him. My father will never find you. You're going to be the king of Israel. And I'll be next to you, as my father Saul is well aware. When Jonathan spoke these words to David, his words are motivated by his faith for God and his deep awareness of David's faith. But more than Jonathan's deep love for his best friend and more than Jonathan's deep faith in God's sovereign ham. I'd like to submit that Jonathan simply doesn't care about power and prestige. 
I think this is a characteristic of Jonathan all the way through. In the very first story Jonathan has in the Bible, he conquers a Philistine garrison, and his dad takes the credit. And Jonathan says nothing. He doesn't need the credit. In fact, if you want to go all through Jonathan's story, it feels like every time Jonathan's doing something amazing, Saul takes the credit. And Jonathan seems comfortable with that. Jonathan seems, seems happy to work on the peripheries outside the spotlight. And here he is, the heir to the throne of Israel, the son of the king, the prince of God's people. And he says, don't be afraid. My father will never find you. You're going to be the king of Israel, and I will be right next to you. Be standing there faithfully in the shadows, conquering garrisons that you can take credit for. I'll be quietly killing acres of my enemies that I'll put on your tally. Jonathan doesn't need a throne. He's a great friend. And he loves his job. Albeit his job was killing people. That's kind of a... But he loves his job and he's good at it. Jonathan has everything he needs. Let someone else have the fame. Let someone else have the flash and the glory. Jonathan doesn't need it. Years later, there's another John who pulls that same mindset into the New Testament. He's this preacher who's done what preachers all over the planet dream of doing. He's, he's telling people to repent and he's watching them get baptized. John's flat killing it as a preacher. And on top of that, he's getting famous. People from every, are coming from everywhere to see him. Everyone knows who John is. And, and when people start to ask him about his fame, he surprises everybody and, and in the book of John, chapter 3, verse 28, he says, You yourselves know how plainly I keep telling you I'm not the Messiah. I'm only here to prepare the way for him. It's the bridegroom who marries the bride, and the bridegroom's friend is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows. Therefore, I'm filled with joy at his success. He must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. The bridegroom's friend is simply glad to stand with him. Sounds so much like Jonathan. You'll be king and I'll be right there next to you. I will gladly stand with you. Jonathan is like the patron saint of, it's not about me. The reason he didn't care if his dad took credit for the Philistine garrison was because Jonathan didn't conquer the Philistine garrison for credit. He did it to defeat the enemies of God's people. And when he succeeded, that was his reward. Not the credit. Jonathan didn't mind if David became king because ruling God's people wasn't about him. It was about doing God's will and being a blessing to the people of God. If David was the best man for that, then Jonathan wanted David on the throne. Like John the Baptist, Jonathan was completely comfortable playing his part. However big or small that part is, Jonathan just wanted to play his part. So how do we respond to this? I, I opened up by talking about when I played football, and, and I think um, one of the reasons I love Jonathan's story is because I was a lineman. I know, shocking. Um, when I, uh, so when I had my best games, when, when I was making my most incredible performances, some quarterback or running back got all the glory for it. You know, if I'm really killing it, some other guy you know, is doing the interviews afterwards. And so I kind of love the way, the way Jonathan worked. But the real reason I chose Jonathan this year is because I think 
We could use some of his wisdom right now. We live in a world of likes and shares and people becoming famous because they went viral, which has nothing to do with COVID. We live in a world where we do anything, we don't do anything without weighing how it looks on social media. We want credit for everything. We want validation if we eat a salad. So we take a picture of the salad and we put a trendy like filter on it and we make a cool hashtag, hashtag making smart choices, you know, something. We don't do anything without looking for credit. Which is, it turns out is a terrible metric. Did you know you can buy like views and likes? It's really funny. Brett and I were talking one day and I'm guessing because my phone was listening to me. I get home and I get an advertisement for these little companies that will let you buy views and likes. And for 20 bucks you can buy a thousand views. I was like, well, now, why would you do that? Why would you put something online and then feel good about a thousand views when you paid for them? Come to find out it's a marketing trick. Like, people are way more likely to watch something that has a thousand views than something that has 20 views. So you buy the first thousand for 20 bucks, and then people are like, man, what's going on here? This is kind of cool. I'm like, man, how fake has our world gotten? It's like a terrible metric for things. But that's what we do. And honestly, as crazy as it is to post our salad or our workout or how organized our closet is now so that people will give us credit for these things, the Jonathan reminds us that it's not about that, which I think we need right now. It's not about getting credit. And it's not about power and position. Jonathan's destiny, at least from the typical royal perspective, was for power. Jonathan was the first in line to the throne. And honestly, judging by the way the army came to his rescue, he probably could have taken the throne early if he wanted. Jonathan could have, could have overthrown his father. But again, Jonathan knew it's not about power. And right now I think we need to hear, hear that from Jonathan. I know we all suffer from political exhaustion right now, but maybe your guy will sit behind the desk for the next four years. Maybe in your opinion, the other guy sits behind the desk for a few years. But here's the deal. There's something more important than power. I know the president can affect a lot of things, and the president has nothing to say about how you love your kids. He has nothing to say about whether you're a good and faithful friend. He has nothing to say about whether or not you love God and love people. There are things that power can't touch. I think Jonathan knew that. Like, yeah, I could be king, but I can also be an amazing friend and watch my friend sit on the throne and I'm going to get to be right by his side. I can't find a single verse that says a Christian should live in a country that's led by one party or another. But I can absolutely find Bible that says you should be a good husband or a good wife. I can absolutely find passages that tell us to pray. I can absolutely quote scripture that tells us to be a good boss or a good employee, to work hard. This is the gospel we follow. Our Savior sat on a throne in heaven. You can't get more powerful. You can't get higher than that. And he abandoned that power to descend into our mess. Jesus judged living a human life to be more important than that power. To save us. Jesus often healed in response to faith. Why? Because he knew that it was nothing to exercise raw power, but to be able to get a human being to engage faith in God was, a, was something more important than power. 
Jesus stood before Pilate talking about how he had legions of angels at his disposal, ready to exercise divine power, real crushing power at the slightest word. But there were things more important than that power. The power was easy to move. But laying down power for someone else is not easy at all. That kind of move leaves you sweating blood in a garden, begging for another path. But that's the Jesus we serve. We... He's our Savior. And for you, he said, like Jonathan, you take my place, I'll take yours. It didn't matter that our place was a cross. He still gladly swapped. And as much as we scrap for power, as much as we want to fight for our market share, as hard as we work for every like and every share and and trying to find our way for viral recognition, the way of Jesus is almost going in the opposite direction. The path of Jesus is usually a path of descent. Jesus moved from heaven to earth. The path of Jesus is the path to enter another person's pain. Even if you can't make it stop, to just sit in it with them. The path of Jesus changes diapers and mows grass and sends encouraging texts to people. Oftentimes we watch YouTube videos with these huge stadiums full of passionate worshipers. And believe me, I'm not against big worship concerts. I love them. But more often the path of Jesus is millions and millions of ordinary worshipers who love Jesus and people faithfully every day in utter obscurity. Jonathan understood that kind of faithfulness. I mean, can you imagine if, if Jonathan like was running for president today? If he was like, you know what? You take the resolute desk. I'll be like the chief of staff or something. Very different than what we see. I'm in a couple of Facebook groups with other pastors. <laughs> I think my closing's coming soon. It's got to be. I'm in a couple of Facebook groups with other pastors and, and one pastor asked me what our church's mission statement was. And I was like, I have no idea. <laughs> and he was kind of shocked and I was like, I, I don't know why anyone would want to join Open Tables mission. Like, really what we do is we gather to do the things we know we're supposed to do. We pray and we study the scripture and we bless our kids and we worship together. Like, And meanwhile, we're kind of grappling for God's mission, the missio dei, like the, the mission of God and and we're hoping we can find a way to be a part of that. We don't have our own mission. Why would we want our own mission? Our, our, our hopes, because God's going to do what he's going to do. Our hopes are, man, man, can I be a part of that? Like, can we join in your mission, God? Like, we don't, we don't have a big plan of our own. We just want to quietly join the mission of God. Whatever God's doing today in Wellsville, we're excited if we get to be a part of that and get to join in. We don't have our own agenda. We're just trying to live faithfully and hunt for whatever God is doing. So so if you were like really hoping to hear Open Table's mission statement, I hope I didn't disappoint. I don't know what it is. I didn't have a theme in mind when we chose this year's Saint series. I kind of have this huge running list of people I'm excited to study and talk about each year. And I usually try to use a woman and a minority and someone from Bible times and then just like a normal white guy. But... 
I chose this year mostly just to kind of fit that pattern, but as I've dug into these first three, it seems like our pattern is just simplicity. Zumaraga was thrown completely over his head, to, and all he could do, because he had no resources, was just to preach and love the people around him. And he completely changed Mexico. Monica literally changed the world by being a mom and praying for her kids like moms do. And Jonathan puts his mark on history by deciding not to be in the spotlight. So to, to all you supporting types, those of you who are, who are the type that don't need a microphone and don't need a title and don't need like viral impact to live faithfully, God bless you. May your tribe increase. You'll be the ones to change the world. And I hope the rest of us can learn from your example. Let's uh, go to the table.